Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they're involved in their communities. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, head on over to patreon.com growing slash growing democracy <laughs> oh, wait. slash forget that slash there Ashley My just head over to gracious. Patreon you know do whatever hold on here that is here it is again patreon.com slash growing democracy oh all right there we go we got it yeah you absolutely can and you should folks head on over there we'd love to have you as our patrons now today we had the pleasure of once again speaking with a social worker Social workers are are friends of the podcast. Yes, for sure they are. (laughs) Yeah, we love our social workers here. And I just, you know, one of the things I really like, uh, and I'll say it again, because I think I said this on the last episode too, is I I love the holistic view of the person and how how when, when you are serving the needs of a person, that it has to be throughout. And that part of Uh, you know, a holistic treatment plan is that you recognize that they live in communities and therefore civic engagement uh, is necessarily part of that. Yeah. Right. Like you're a person, but you're a person in the world. Yeah. You're a person like in community with other people and social work just uh, is such an amazing profession that recognizes and moves back and forth. Right. Like understands that communities impact people and people impact their communities and that it's all intertwined. And so I think, I think part of the reason we keep coming back to interviewing social workers and people trained in social work, um, whether it's at the, you know, the, the level of direct client services or kind of policy level is that, you know, it's civic and political engagement is integral uh, to, to that space. Yeah, yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I think that that's uh, that's something that we that we really um, have a good time with here, as is evidenced by the interview that you guys are about to listen to. So enjoy. Angela Cece's. It has her uh, MSW and is a licensed social worker and graduated with her master's degree in social work from Case Western Reserve University in 2019 with a focus in community practice for social change. While in her program, she had a robust internship with Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, which opened uh, uh, <laughs> opened her up to the world of community development and more intentional civic engagement. Prior to her master's program, Angela enjoyed her role as the housing specialist for Coleman Professional Services in Portage County. Her current role as the police co-responder in Cleveland has meshed both micro and macro social work. Her passion for this work has provided a well-rounded perspective of our community systems and broad civic engagement perfect person to have on the podcast. (laughs) I'm going to add a real quick note that says that Angela is also part of our advisory collective for the Growing Democracy Project. So um, has we been connected for the last few years as we've evolved and developed. 
Ashley always likes to uh, put that asterisk in there that we know people. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> in a very That's- small capacity, <laughs> very small, small parts in this thing. But no, that's much appreciated. So now I know Ashley just read your bio. And so, you know, this is always the part where people say, well, what am I supposed to share? But there's always something uh, for me, at least, really much more uh, meaningful and interesting underneath all the stuff that she read and all the titles that you have. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, definitely. So um, I'm from Northeast Ohio. I grew up in the city of Lorraine in Lorraine County, which was an experience in and of itself. I attended Kent State, actually, in 2015. Yay! I graduated. Yeah. Alma mater. Um, so... My degrees were human development and family studies with a concentration in child and youth development and minors in psychology and nonprofit studies. Um, So that's where I got my start in this world. Um, It was a great experience. I've always been interested in people and why they do what they do and say what they say and the psychology behind it all. And I think growing up in Lorraine had a huge impact on who I am and like why I'm in this field. Um, so after Kent, I stayed in stayed in that area, and I worked as a housing specialist, like Ashley mentioned, um, at Coleman Professional Services. So I housed our chronically homeless population with severe and persistent mental illness. I loved that job. It, you know, basically raised me to be the clinician I am today. It was very <laughs> intensive work. I had to work with all of the different social service agencies, the housing authority, landlords, other community members, and the clients. It was a really good mix of like the macro social work and the micro social work experience. And then um, through that experience, I was exposed to Kohio, which I love attending those conferences and all the HUD rules and regulations and funding opportunities related to the agency and just the services and funds that help our clients and that helped Coleman you know, specifically. After that, I went back and I got my master's from the Mandel School at Case Western in social work. Um, My focus, I decided to switch a little bit and do community practice for social change, which is the macro side of social work. So it was community organizing and development, learning about strategic planning and different campaigns and initiatives and um, what that looks like. Um, It was a very intensive dive into civic engagement in regards to all the theories and frameworks we learned um, and how we impact communities and work directly with individuals. I was also exposed at that time to Ashley through Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, which was my internship. Cleveland Neighborhood Progress does, it's called the Progress Institute, and Ashley came and was a speaker. So that's how we met. Her session was amazing. (laughs) Really good. And then, yeah, so that, you know, working at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress really, again, was another deep dive into community development and community organizing at play in, in the city of Cleveland. I graduated, which was really exciting and a breath <laughs> of fresh air, not being in school anymore and feeling like I was finally done with having to be in school. Yeah, I uh, got a job at Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority doing landlord engagement. Um, that was fun. I did that for a year. Um, And then I missed mental health and community mental health work. And so I decided to go back into crisis work and work at the Nord Center and now at Frontline Service doing uh, mobile crisis, which has led into this co-responder program. 
So if you cannot tell, you know, social work and the industry is my passion. I like couldn't imagine being in any other space in my life. I feel like I never go to work in the traditional yeah. sense, which is all I could have hoped for in life. So I'm um, really happy with that. You were talking about like micro and macro. What what are those differences? What does that mean to folks like me? I mean, I think right micro and macro economics, yeah. but that's my <laughs> Yeah, no, it's very similar. So over the last maybe decade or two, macro social work has become this new hot area of topics. So you have your direct practice, which is all the clinical work that people work with individuals on a like one-on-one basis, the programming, the direct work of uh, social work, like the traditional roles you think of, social ser- like children's services, housing services, community case management, things like that. And then the macro work is community organizing and community development and uh, conflict mediation, things like that, your space. It's bridging that gap between like the public policy side of the work that people do in, in, um, in our communities and make social work a game player, a, a more um, important game player in those roles. So I almost feel like the role that you have now in, in, in many ways as a, a kind of in the world of crisis intervention almost bridges those two, right? Like, so you're working in direct practice, you're, you're a co-responder doing kind of that macro work, but it's situated in this very, dare I say, contentious policy space <laughs> of law enforcement. Can you, can you tell us a little bit more about your current role and, and, and maybe if it, you know, if it fits, how you kind of move between micro and macro in your current role? Yeah, definitely. So crisis work and working in emergency services in the behavioral health realm is a special role between like case management and counseling and med compliance with psychiatry. It's involves like emergency situations. So as a crisis clinician, we engage people in their worst moments to determine if they need hospitalization or if we can help them stabilize in the community where they are and relink them to like outpatient services and providers. So that's what crisis services does just as a whole. Currently, my role in Cleveland is a huge partnership between frontline service, which focuses on like housing um, and homelessness um, and advocacy, and then Murtis Taylor, which is another community mental health agency. So we have clinicians from both of those agencies paired with Cleveland police officers. The Adams Board of Cuyahoga County is a, is a funder and a contribu- contributor to the program. They assist with the CIT training for the officers. Um, and then the Begun Center for Violence Prevention through Mandel and Case Western um, is assisting with data collection and evaluation. So right there, you can see all of the different players and stakeholders involved in the process. And I bet you can imagine the the meetings and the bureaucracy and the different policies and regulations we have to work with. And this program is so new. Um, We're paired, it's a crisis clinician paired with an officer on a one-to-one basis. There's five teams because there's five police districts in the city of Cleveland. So we're also working with the actual districts, the commanders, the lieutenants, the sergeants, and the patrol officers. So then you have that system. Um, And then we're working with the hospitals, um, the emergency departments, um, all of the agencies to make sure these people that are in crisis have support so that when they're not in crisis, they still, you know, can manage and they, they, hopefully we can stabilize them so they have less crises that police have to respond to or uh, crisis clinicians have to respond to. I think when you have any partnership, especially with all of the systems perspective 
perspectives and roles in the game, there's going to be this civic engagement piece and the bureaucracy that comes with it, like I mentioned. Over the last few months, we've been engaging with all those agencies and institutions. You know, the one thing is police take clients to hospitals because it's a safety and liability thing, right? Like they don't want to be liable in that moment. So having a clinician paired with that officer, I can assess, I'm trained to assess to make sure like, okay, they might not be admitted if they go to the hospital based on what I'm seeing. So what else can we do? So it's not just a revolving door of taking them to the hospital, them getting released then they call 911 again, and then they ask to go to a different hospital because they weren't assisted. Obviously, if they need to be seen, we're going we're gonna to get them there. We're going to make sure they see a doctor. But it's it's a new program. They, they did a pilot project for this program about, I think it was between 2015 and 2018, possibly, where it was just officers and then frontline clinicians would, for mobile crisis, would go and assist after the fact. And so it's a little, it was structured differently than how, how it came back, what, what it came back to be currently. Um, it's better, I've heard, um, which is always a good thing, right? Again, this is a three-year grant, and we're collecting a lot of data to see like what this could look like, how we can make it bigger, expand it, among other like large conversations happening. But that macro piece is the fact that there's a lot of decisions that have to be made that weren't already in place. So as clinicians on the ground daily, we're coming up with new things to add to the procedures manual. So we are creating the procedures manual as we go. And some clinicians don't have that background. So it's been really cool to be someone who has the clinical experience and who has, you know, the strategic planning experience and the nonprofit experience that I can make sure like we're thinking of all the things that we need to be to make sure this program is successful in the future. Yeah, I, I have a follow-up question, and, and I know this wasn't asked ahead of time, so maybe it's okay if you know you don't have a, a an answer to this. But it seems to me that the the idea of like micro and macro is very complementary to, I mean, what's long been the standard in social work, which is that you see individuals as a holistic person, right? That you're not just treating a specific symptom or right a specific. A a thing that's in front of you. How does that ideology and philosophy match well with the current role that you're in? Yeah, I mean, it makes me think of the systems at play, right? We're constantly thinking of the systems at play. How are the systems impacting individuals and vice versa? How is this individual impacting the system, the healthcare system? So, I think the the macro role and the micro role, sometimes there's a confusion between the two, right? Because they do seem very similar. Um, but I would say that, you know, even in the social work field, we're siloed. We talk about silos a lot, you know, and um, how we break down those silos. And I think that programs like this show the opportunity to make sure that we have clinicians that have the macro perspective background and not just the micro. And I think over the last couple of years in um, social work education, um, they have been having that conversation and trying to bridge that and make sure that direct people who only want to do the direct practice work still have some understanding of how these frameworks and tactics that macro social workers learn an understanding of how those are utilized so that they can be aware of them in their, you know, day-to-day workings with the, the individuals they work with. 
because it's important, right? Policy is important. You know, we, we deal with insurance policies and, you know, Medicaid redesign when that happened. And a lot of clinicians were so confused, um, by all of those. So, um, it's just, you know, making sure that the spaces don't stay siloed and start working together a little more intentionally, I think would be very beneficial. Yeah. I hope I answered that question. You absolutely did. And that like makes a lot of sense. Uh, to me. And, and so I can see how that, that fits very well with what you're doing now. So now I, yeah. I, moving back a little bit, you've previously worked for the Nord Center, which really was kind of like looking to engage the community concerning mental and emotional health. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously during the pandemic, we've discovered that this has taken yeah. a, a pretty tremendous toll, right? On, on mental health and also made Definitely. engaging with th- with those that have these mental health issues uh, a, a real challenge. So I, I wonder if you could talk with us about the importance of you know civic engagement concerning uh, mental health, how we think about or stigmatize mental health, or even get people you know uh, in a place to where they can access mental health services. Yeah, definitely. I think so at Nord, I'm a crisis clinician also in emergency services department. Um, I answer hotline calls and I go out and do the assessments for to assess for level of care, hospitalization or, or not. And I think, you know, I've been working there since the beginning of COVID. Um, and I feel two things, you know, when you ask me that question. The first is I feel overwhelmed a lot of the <laughs> yeah. time. Yeah, mostly. And I know others that work on the hotlines do too, mostly by the amount of juveniles we assess and hear what they're struggling with currently doing, like currently due to COVID. We are constantly assessing if COVID is playing a role. We, they, they've updated our hotline sheet forms to include those questions. It's all about data gathering too, from the public health perspective. You know, we're seeing, these issues with kids, you know, in regards to schooling and seeing friends and getting a break from their parents and getting out of the house to do fun activities, all which basically vanished during COVID. So that's been overwhelming to a lot of us. It's like we we're struggling with the same things as clinicians. We really don't know what to do for ourselves and our families, but we hear you and understand that it's almost like we're peer support specialists um, in that matter. And two, it's a growing sense of optimism as well. Because we've always said, you know, it's so unfortunate that something occurs after something bad happens. But honestly, due to COVID, there's been like a huge increase in the amount of people talking about mental health and engaging in mental health services and supports than ever before. With the National Suicide Prevention Line, those calls have been increasing across the country. Like they're talking about that more. I hear radio commercials constantly talking about mental health now with different providers in the fields, um, which is good. And um, I even heard a radio commercial that listed like the Cleveland mobile crisis number like on there. I was like, wow, that's crazy. Like that would have never happened a couple years ago, right? Like no one talked about it. I think COVID has broken the final seal of silence mm-hmm. on mental health, which is, okay. which is awesome. Yeah. Right. If there's I, a silver lining, I suppose we'll take that. <laughs> there's always, there always has to be, right? We we try to stay op- optimistic in this field. We have to. <laughs> Absolutely. So so I have a I have a quick follow up for you. You've mentioned data and evaluation a couple times, and of course, Casey and I love data and are really interested in program evaluation. How do you see kind of data and evaluation as integral? to kind of civic life or even civic engagement more specifically? 
Yeah, definitely. I think it's the backbone of it, right? Like you need data to support any program, any evidence-based practice that is out there. People want they want the numbers, they want the stats, they want to know that there's a result. Obviously, in granting, grant writing, grant funding, that's a huge one. We we need funding for these programs and data is the backbone of of gaining that funding. It's also, I guess, when it comes to civic engagement, too, it's it's data for city officials, right? City council, mayors, like, th- this might not be their expertise. They might not have a good understanding of what we do and why we do it. But if the numbers are there, it's going to talk for them. So we, we need that. We need their support. And that's a way to get it. Not to plug my own class, because I... I teach data preparation and and analysis. Oh, I see why that question was important. (laughs) (laughs) But but, I mean, one of the things I I tell my students is that, you know, data visualization is communication, Mm -hmm. right? That that you're telling a story with it. So if you're not able to do that, especially Mm -hmm. when you're sharing the story with decision makers, policymakers, you know, that that can get lost and they may not be able to use that data to make uh, important decisions that they need to make. Definitely. I mean, I think the move, like even in strategic planning, you know, you used to have the logic model. Now you have the theory of change, which is super short impact statements that people can just visualize and see. And that's backed up by all the data we collect. And it's a goal too, right? When you have that theory of change or that logic model, you're looking at, you know, what you're ascribing, you know, what you're trying and hoping to gain out of that program too. So it's a guide, a guideline as well. Yeah. And and in the organizing space, you know, I think oftentimes the emphasis is on, on stories, but even when we've had other guests on to talk about, you know, the significance and importance of data, what pairing the, the, the statistics um, and the other metrics with the stories is such a powerful way of meeting multiple constituencies. And I think that really kind of resonates um, regardless of how, like the type of data that we're, we're collecting. Okay. So I have another question for you about that, but it's more specifically about your work um, at the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority. So you, you worked as a mobility and landlord outreach coordinator. Can you talk about the the significance of housing stability, especially in the context of the work you do now around like crisis intervention? Like housing is so integral in my in my assumption, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, it's the single most important basic need we we need as individuals as a housing specialist. And then when I worked at CMHA and even now in my work in crisis, it's safety, security, and shelter. It's stability in life. It allows for healthy eating habits, bathing, and physical health needs, engagement with family. And it allows for service providers to be able to assist people in a stable location. You can't help someone you can't find. Um, That's like my biggest mantra when I do this work. You can't rely, unfortunately, for low-income community members. You can't lie on a phone number to contact them. I remember when I was a housing specialist, I was always out in the community looking for people, going from house to house. Like in smaller rural communities, people know each other too, right? So I could just go ask someone like, hey, have you seen so-and-so? You know, because I know that they're friends or they're family members. So it's a little different in... um, the city of Cleveland than it would be like in Portage County or Lorain County. But 
um, still, uh, it, it's so important and, and it allows for case managers to be able to provide services. Um, you know, the housing first model that's come about in the last couple of years um, is really important as well. And it allows for community engagement with neighbors and churches and schools. You can't vote and influence local laws that impact, you know, you as a person without having a stable housing environment as well. Um, They can't get involved, you know, otherwise. Now, you've also, I mean, gosh, you've just worked in so many different areas with civic engagement. But one of these was marketing and promotion for a nonprofit. I think for many people that might seem like a, a disconnect that marketing and promotion is for, for you know corporations and for-profit entities but but there is a need for marketing and promotion for a nonprofit can you discuss the importance of this uh, especially when you're you know kind of geared toward increasing civic engagement yeah definitely so um i was always involved in like journalism in high school and the yearbook like I just loved it as a hobby website design I did dabbled in that a little bit with a nonprofit, which became a secret side hobby that I just love to do Um, (laughs) but in my master's program like they really zeroed in on the idea of marketing and how powerful and truly beneficial marketing can be if done correctly and in a specific way and how that contributes to the success of any program or campaign you're trying to enact in the community. It also it also helps when like when I interned at Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, like to be able to see how they use those techniques in real life was really important, how it came to life in the community. I mean, so I'm from the city of Lorraine and growing up when I was younger there was nothing to do there. The downtown city center was decimated by just the economy. Um, there was nothing there and then all of a sudden in the last few years people, somebody came in and decided to redevelop the hotel down there. And then all of a sudden there was this, this huge push of funding to, you know, redesign downtown Lorraine and, and, and the marketing, you know, that takes to get people re-engaged when they were never engaged in the first place because of the history you know, that's important. That's important for mental health and well-being too, just to circle back to some of the other things that we discussed if your community isn't beautiful or isn't engaging to you, um, which comes down to community organizing and having those that skill set as a as a backbone to your community, you know those people aren't going to feel connected to the community either. So, you know, I'm I'm even utilizing it now in regards to like clinical direct practice work, which is awesome too with that national conversation around Black Lives Matter and the future of policing, um, I really see a space for, you know, marketing and the the frameworks and tactics you learn as a macro social worker, um, you know, community building, asset building, things like that. Those those frameworks could be so beneficial right now for for this this whole conversation around Black Lives Matter and the future of policing along with mental health in general. And there's something really powerful about how we frame and reframe issues, right? Like our our approach, right? And which is just completely wrapped up in thinking about marketing and promotion and, and then so deeply intertwined with changing the narrative, right? So if, you know, at the systemic level, how do we change the narrative around policing um, and, and so on? So to, to that point, some of the other spaces that you've worked in have been, 
around around youth, but you've worked with you know a, a variety of different populations across Northeast Ohio, really. Yeah. From your perspective, how yeah. how can cities engage people, whether it's young people, people who mm-hmm. are without stable housing, people in crisis? How do we? How do cities um, and municipalities, whatever space this is? create spaces to ensure that their voices, their needs, their concerns are met in decision-making processes? So I think, I think that as social workers and and the, the backbone of social work and community development has always traditionally been in programs. What programs can we put in place to, to do X or Y, to make, to make this better, to make, to bring a service to this group of people. And I think that we always have a problem with, again, marketing and framing the narrative the right way. So you get people to, to want to engage. And I think that the next step is really, really ingraining the macro tactics that are out there and available that people don't know about and making that widespread in the community. For instance, one of the projects I worked on when I was in my master's program was an independent study on youth engagement practices and principles um, is my passion project. Um, I was very excited when I got it done. And it's about taking a theory and a framework like positive youth development and taking that past programs and making it a almost like a framework that the community rests on, like a foundation for community work to rest on. So it's broadening the scope of work past the programs and into the community itself. That means youth advisory councils, making sure youth aren't just tokens being brought in, making sure that as adults, we're not discouraging youth from doing anything that's going to help the communities and help them as individuals succeed. And it's, it's, it was one of those things where when I did the project and I would go to stakeholders to interview them for it um, in the community, they would say, oh, so it's like such and such program. And I'd be like, no, it's more than that. It's taking that program and, and really utilizing collective impact, breaking down the silos between all the different systems and saying youth need to be... Um, not just someone we bring to the table as an afterthought, but part of the conversation along the way as an integral piece or, and I guess you could, you could, you know, use that same concept with any group of people, individuals, homeless populations, things like that. It's, it's not, what are we doing for this person, but what are they doing for us to make sure that as a community, we're all functioning together like integrate it like like almost systemically integrating people into the into processes (laughs) yes exactly it's like instead of starting from when you think of systems theory it's instead of starting from the individual you're starting from the outside the the morals Mm -hmm. the beliefs the values of that community and making sure that youth are thought of from that first initial Mm -hmm. points of anything you know happening now, I, so I, I want to know, because you said earlier, right, that right, as a social worker, that you're thinking about programs that can be, you know, used to either either developed or used to help 
the needs of, you know, individuals that are seen. And, and I don't disagree with that. I would say 99% of my social worker friends would wholeheartedly agree with that statement. But it occurs to me that that potentially becomes a partisan stance, right? Where you have historically people like and I'm, I don't, I think this was Reagan and I don't know if it's an exact quote, but I think he said something like shrink government to the size so that you could drown it in the bathtub, right? That, that government is the problem, not the solution. So, you know, I'm, I'm curious because that it doesn't occur to me that social work is a partisan, uh, you know, discipline or field or practice. So do, do government programs have to be partisan? Does do, do programs that, you know, meet the needs of individuals in our communities, does that have to be or should it be something that's politicized? Quick note, it was Grover Norquist, but Grover Norquist, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for <laughs> so, you know, just as a quick aside, it gives you more time to think about how you respond to this follow-up. <laughs> thank you for that. No, that was a huge question. I, I, I think about that from multiple different points, right? So like you can think of how religion has a role in in social work and, you know, community support and how like Catholic charities got involved in the Salvation Army. Those all have a religious base, you know, backing to them. And then you could think about everything that's been happening in the world and how most social workers tend to be liberal. And they do tend to have a partisan view of, you know, the practice that they they go along with. I think there's also a conversation in the social work field how our ethics, the social work mm-hmm. ethics that we have to follow through our licensing board mm-hmm. does ha- hit on a partisan perspective. It, it does align more so with one than the other. And I think that... It also shouldn't, you know, be partisan, but you can't, I don't know. I always say I couldn't vote for a law or a bill or a person who has opposing ideals and opinions that opposes things that my clients would benefit from. When I, when I, when I look at, you know, the policies and the legislation that's out there and the programs and where the funding goes and how insurance plays a role in all of that which government all has a hand in deciding. So I, I always say I couldn't vote against, against my clients. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of social workers believe that as well. I also think that a- anybody in the community has a responsibility to, you know, to their political role in our community. You have to be responsible in making sure you're, citing your sources and following your ethics and morals and stopping group thing from happening before it gets too out of control. Um, so the, the responsible, the responsibility there is super important, whether whichever side you're on and whatever field you're in. Well, I mean, it's something that we deal with often too, where like we are intentionally nonpartisan um, with the growing democracy project, but we mm-hmm. Our one of our primary values and our kind of the first value we list is a commitment to social justice. And some people mm-hmm. perceive that as a deeply partisan issue. Mm-hmm. We claim that 
it's not, <laughs> right? Um, it, doesn't, yeah. oh, it doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't need right. to be. But I think that you, I, what I hear you saying is similar in that, right? Like yeah. I, I come with my values and my, my worldview. Um, and that's mm-hmm. how I've, I'm not necessarily wedded to one particular party or one per- partisan view, mm-hmm. uh, though I think most people would assume that I vote one way or another because of the kind of the claims that I make and the statements yeah. that I make around uh, around wor- the world. <laughs> I think it's also like the ACLU, right? Like the ACLU has a stance where they... I I almost interned for them. They didn't choose me, but that's fine. <laughs> but one of their one of the things one of the things they enforce there is your First Amendment right to free speech, no yeah. matter what that means. Whether and they they told me like you have to be okay with if the ACLU takes a stance on something and backs someone in their you know freedom of speech, and it might go against what you believe in your morals and values. You. Ha- are you going to be okay with that? Could you do that? Mm-hmm. And I think, I think that, and just with the way politics and you know, s- civic organizing and engagement has been going over the last couple of years, I think that that's a smart stance, right? Like we all should be more responsible in sitting down, doing doing the research, being responsible citizens, truly like finding where our base level, like where we stand and not based on a partisan, you know, viewpoint or mindset, but really like me as an individual or with my family, like what makes the most sense? So so I have another quick (laughs) follow-up because I love this conversation so much. Yeah. So um, I think, you know, I have a, like this much social work background. I'm Mm -hmm. raising my fingers and (laughs) showing (laughs) this a little bit. A thimbleful. A thimbleful uh-huh. of social work background. And, you know, my entry point and my my experience in that space was often met with, like, it's a helping profession, not a political profession. Mm-hmm. But macro social work is engaging with policy. It's engaging with systems. And as you're talking, it's also sometimes perceived by some or is at least impacted by partisan politics how do you navigate that space between kind of social work as a helping profession and social work as a political space? Maybe it's the same question as I asked before, just framed differently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, that's kind of, kind of similar, I guess. But I think personally for me, it's knowing who's in government, right. And supporting people that, you know, there's more social workers than ever before in political office, in the Senate, in the House. And I think that's so important that our ideals and ethics are reflected because I truly support our ideals and ethics as from the, the social work perspective. And I think, again, me as an individual, to navigate that space is really difficult, honestly, at times. <laughs> like, truly, like, it's exhausting And I think we as social workers talk about burnout and vicarious trauma, and we talk about um, being mindful of our self-care. And I would just say that that also transcends into politics. And 
knowing that if you need to take a step back, that it's okay to do that and encouraging other social, it's encouraging other social workers to get involved in the political sphere and to understand the policies that directly affect them as clinicians and their clients, but also encouraging people to support each other and to take a step back, you know, and and supporting them to say, it's okay that you can't have that conversation right now somebody else can, you know, pick it up. And the more social workers we have engaging in those conversations, the more people can take breaks when they need to, you know, um, to support our clients and to support the, the uh, social justice aspects of the work that we do. Now, if, if you were able to, like, you know, write, <laughs> write a, a, a Wikipedia entry or a dictionary entry for, right, political and civic engagement, from your perspective, what what does an engaged populace look like? What does that mean? I think, again, it goes back to just being responsible, like being a responsible community member and citizen. And that means doing your research. That means not just listening to the lip service of other people. It's really engaging and getting involved to make sure that your ideals and opinions and perspectives are reflected in your local government, in your state government, and federally. I think over the last four years, people have really started engaging, you know, the, the good side of engagement and the negative side of engagement that we've seen. But I mean, they're engaging and that's probably like, I mean, we asked for it, right? Like in this year, <laughs> we asked for people to engage and that's what they're doing now. So again, just being, I think being responsible and all that means is just so important and probably my biggest viewpoint on the matter. Angela, thank you so much for talking with us. Do you have anything else to add? Any words of wisdom um, to share with our listeners? I would just say get involved and be passionate, you know, like this work can get so overwhelming and bogged down by politics, right? But I've found that like, as long as you find that one thing you're passionate about, whether it's housing or youth or mental health or, you know, community organizing around different social justice topics, like just do it and remember your passions um, because that's what's going to carry you through any of the work that you do. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. I like I had so much fun talking with you guys. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd Swan, and with me as always is my co-host Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Our podcast is supported by our Patreon patrons. Thank you, patrons. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com slash growingdemocracyoh. Do it now! And join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.